Hello and welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm your host, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that the main point of this entire discussion series is to focus on American constitutionalism beyond the four walls of the Supreme Court, thinking about all of our constitutional institutions, not just judges and precedents, but not always. Today, we're looking squarely at the court and the judicial system and Supreme Court litigation through the eyes of one of today's leading appellate advocates. Deepak Gupta is the founding partner of Gupta Wessler, one of Washington's leading firms specializing in Supreme Court and appellate litigation. And more specifically, Deepak and his colleagues emphasize consumer rights, workers' rights, class actions, and other constitutional issues. He's argued four Supreme Court cases and many other cases. He's filed countless legal briefs and other Supreme Court and appellate cases. When he's not litigating, he's advocating in the court of public opinion through his writing and his media appearances, and he's a lecturer at Harvard Law School. Before entering private practice, Deepak was an attorney at Public Citizen, the ACLU, and Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. He also served in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, but his most recent government service was in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where he served as Senior Counsel for Litigation and Senior Counsel of Enforcement Strategy. He was part of the CFPB's founding under Elizabeth Warren, who hired him as the CFPB's first appellate lawyer. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a while, but first, Deepak, welcome. Thanks for having me. And as always, we're joined by my AEI colleague, Tal Fortgang. Tal, welcome back. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be here, and congratulations to you. Uh, As of about a half hour before this recording, our first episode went live. So to anyone who's hearing this, be sure to check out older episodes at Unprecedential is our Twitter handle. That's Unprecedential Podcast at Unprecedential. Though I really did like what we had before, which was at least underscore dangerous. But for the sake of not confusing our listeners and followers, we switched it to at Unprecedential. At any rate, we're live, we're podcasting, we're tweeting, and we're off and running. Deepak, you're present for the founding of the CFPV. Now you're present for the founding of, of this podcast. You just are in a founding. Hard to tell which is more exciting. All right. <laughs> so we'll get back to the CFPB in a little bit, but let's first talk about your legal practice. Now, just so the, the audience knows, Deepak and I met years ago around the time uh, that he founded his practice. He had just left the CFPB and he had embarked on a project of building a sort of a, an elite an innovative Supreme Court practice. And it's now grown to, I don't know what your current headcount is, but... We're eight lawyers. We're about to add a couple more. We're, we're expanding. Uh-huh. We're opening a California office next month. So, yeah. Wow. Exciting. Well, so tell us how, how you got started with this and what, what your firm's practice is like. Yeah. So, you know, I had been thinking about the possibility of a practice like this when I was at Public Citizen. I'd been thinking about it for years, and it, it probably took me, you know, years, maybe a decade to work up the courage to actually try to do it. And, you know, what I saw was that there is a really big advocacy imbalance. Specialization in Supreme Court and appellate advocacy tends to be concentrated in big corporate law firms or in places like the Solicitor General's offices, you know, in, in the States and the U.S. Solicitor General's office. But that produced an advocacy imbalance because when you have the little guy on the other side of the V, whether it's a consumer or a worker or even plaintiffs in class actions, there weren't specialized Supreme Court and appellate practitioners to represent them. And I think you know that was affecting the outcomes in cases. It was affecting the way the Supreme Court perceived issues, the way it selected cases. So it seemed to me that 
there ought to be a way to re- to address that imbalance. And also that, that it seemed to me that there were probably was a business model there that would work in private practice, that it would be possible to do it without exclusively relying on philanthropic funding. Listeners might not know this, but there's been a revolution in Supreme Court litigation over, what would you say, that maybe the past 25 to yeah, 30 years? It started in the 1980s, picked yeah. up steam in the 1990s, where you had it started with people leaving the U.S. Solicitor General's office and decamping for, for some big Washington law firms. Right. People like Rex Lee, I exactly. suppose. Yeah. yeah. So in the middle 80s, you have people from the Reagan Justice Department going to the big D.C. firms and really professionalizing Supreme Court litigation so that more and more cases were being brought, not by whatever lawyer happened to be litigating them in you know the state of Iowa or wherever the case came from, but cases as they came to the Supreme Court, they would take on Washington Council full of Solicitor General's office veterans or other appellate veterans and really changed. There are great studies of this by Richard Lazarus, I suppose, of Harvard exactly. and elsewhere. So you, you come into this and you're going to create a new law firm. What's that like, actually? <laughs> it's one thing to say there's, a, there's an opportunity yeah. here and a need, yeah. but how do you actually leave a, a large institution like the nonprofits you'd worked for or the agency you just helped to found yeah. and you're creating this new firm? Yeah, it was a really terrifying thing to do. I mean, I think I had some sense that I could do it because I had developed relationships with lawyers around the country when I was a practicing lawyer at Public Citizen. And I had argued a case in the in the Supreme Court, AT&T versus Concepcion, that was about whether corporations could use the fine print of contracts to prevent workers and consumers from banding together and bringing class actions. And There were a whole lot of advocates, people who represent consumers and workers and all sorts of class action plaintiff's lawyers who followed that case really closely. And so they were familiar with the advocacy work I had done. I had met a lot of folks through that and and many other cases that I had done around the country. And so I had a sense that, okay, I could work with some of those kinds of lawyers, use that as a base to build a practice. And it's worked and, and has really surprised me how much we've been able to expand beyond that into a bunch of different progressive areas and and plaintiff side areas, really where we are, you know, the only firm that's really offering that kind of representation. We're, we're, you know, I don't think we are competing with our counterparts at, you know, the other big Washington firms because they're just representing different kinds of clients. You actually, when you, when you founded your firm, you really advertise the fact you're focused on particular issues or being under, underserved, issues with, I think it's fair to say, a, a, a progressive or a, a populist bent. I don't know how you'd, you'd frame it. But you, yeah. you said we're going to focus on things like consumer protection, right? which was a natural outgrowth of your work at the CFPB, right. things like workers' rights and so on. I'm just curious, how, how, what was it like to found a firm that's going to be representing clients, paid, paid clients and, and you know, public interest clients, but, but saying from the start, we have an ideological Maybe I'm overstating it, but an ideological orientation. I mean, the, 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 let's, let's call a spade a spade here. Politically, there's a lot that you and I disagree on. Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> and there have been firms on the right that had this bent. Paul Clement famously yes. co-chaired a firm called the Bancroft Group. He's now at Kirkland and Ellis. The fact that he came out of the Bush administration and was active on case on issues like the gay marriage debates, or um, I can't remember if he was involved in the Second Amendment or not, but they definitely took on... Was he? He does a lot of gun work, and we actually have opposed each other on those issues. Yeah. Yeah, So so this has been done before, to have a firm that has a political orientation to it, but it does complicate things. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think 
my goal was to self-consciously brand the firm as having any kind of political orientation. And in fact, having worked at, at Public Citizen, what I saw sometimes is that people were a little skittish in high-profile cases about working with advocacy groups that were self-consciously advocacy groups and were worried about how the courts would perceive that. Yeah. So it's interesting. You can take the same band of lawyers and call yourself a law firm and have a more conventional law firm type name, yeah. and you, then you're not perceived that way, even though you might be thinking in the same way and doing similar kinds of advocacy. And so I actually thought it, it occurred to me when those kinds of things would happen that actually having just something that looks like a conventional law firm is more flexible. It's not driven by a stated mission that's, that a board of directors is monitoring. Right. Instead, you can, be, you can be whatever lawyer you need to be for the client and for the case. And I actually, I really enjoy that. It's, it's freeing as a lawyer. And so I'd say we didn't set out to have some sort of rigid ideological mission, and, and nor do I think... Paul Clement and his colleagues set out to do that at Bancroft either. Now, of course, they are conservatives and they tended to be associated with conservative causes, but I don't think he is or I am a rigid ideologue. And in fact, one of the first projects that I worked on in the Supreme Court after starting the new firm was a case in which I worked with Paul Clement. We were on the same side and we represented the plaintiffs in American Express versus Italian Colors a case about arbitration in the antitrust context. Yeah. Anyway, back, it's, it's funny, I mentioned these other firms. When you and I first met, I was litigating at a firm called Boyd and Grant Associates. Yep. Same thing, former White House counsel in, in the Bush administration, the first Bush administration. We met because my firm had just sued the CFPB's uh, very existence, over the CFPB's very existence. Right. And nobody was going to confuse us with Elizabeth Warren voters, say. Boyd and I and others were conservative. But not everything we did was ideological. We were working lawyers and we were taking interesting cases yeah. for clients. Exactly. But being at a small firm, this is my next question, being at a small firm then does sort of free you to also take on public interest causes that might be more challenging at a big firm where you have lots of different partners and lots of bureaucracy. You sort of have the freedom to choose not just not not just the, the paid clients you're going to work for, but also the other ways that you want to sort of invest your time and skills in a way that's sort of been part of the, the ethic of lawyering from the very beginning, to dedicate yourself to the public interest and causes beyond just your paid clients. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, here's the, the secret for those who haven't gotten the chance to practice in a small group of people that are like-minded. It's just more fun. I mean, it's more fun. You're, it's collegial. It's collaborative. You're working together. As you say, there isn't the kind of hierarchy. There's not the kind of extreme business pressure to do only the thing that's you know, most profitable. And I think it harkens back to a different era of practicing law, which was more civilized and more in the spirit of what the profession should be about, which is not just a business that's, you know, selling a, a service, but is, you know, kind of a, is a noble profession and, and, and is helping hopefully shape the law in ways that, that help people and make, make the world a better place. You know, it also leaves room. You mentioned that I, I teach, yeah. I teach right now at Harvard Law School. I've taught in the past at, at Georgetown, you know, lawyers in our firm write things that aren't for cases, articles and other yeah. sorts of things. And, and I think being smaller, being less hierarchical, being less profit-driven allows you to create a platform for people can do all those kinds of activities, which over time is much more fulfilling. It's a richer experience. You know, we're in this for the long haul. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of cases that you've argued in the Supreme Court. I went and checked your, your 
org page <laughs> as we were getting ready for this to see. And at, at last count, I guess it was four cases. And in one of these cases, the court actually selected you, uh-huh. right? It was a case where the court felt that there was one issue that needed representation that didn't have it among the parties. And so they specifically sought you out as, a, as amicus, as front of the court, to argue the case. First question is, where do I sign up for a deal like that? <laughs> uh, and, and second, just in general, what's it like to argue a Supreme Court case? So this is something that happens from from time to time, and I, th- I don't know how much the public generally knows about it. But it, it, I'll just know. say it's yeah. it is actually to your great credit. I mean, the court is very careful about handing these cases out to people. They're looking for somebody they can trust to really responsibly and thoroughly and credibly argue a position that they single out as needing representation. And so that's a great credit to you that they picked you. Yeah, it was a real honor and it was a complete and total surprise. I oh, mean, yeah. I, I know that they have this practice. So, you know, sometimes it happens when the solicitor general this abandons a position, which right. is what happened in my case. Sometimes it's when there's a, a jurisdictional issue or some other kind of kind of issue that the court thinks is important and the parties are not going to be addressing it. And so what happens is that the circuit justice, each of the justices are assigned to a particular circuit in the country. That justice gets to decide and recommend to the the full court that that an advocate be selected, and then they call up the advocate. So, we literally get a call from the Supreme Court from Justice Sotomayor's chambers, and there's absolutely no warning. And they they actually tell you before they grant the case, so you have to you know you're sworn to secrecy because they have to make sure you don't have a conflict and you don't have any you know choice in the matter. So I was assigned to represent a position abandoned by the Social Security Administration that would actually foreclose the little guy in Social Security cases from getting into court. And a lot of people thought this was sort of funny because I am associated with trying to get the little guy into court. Yeah, I got to admit, when I saw this, I had to read it twice. I thought I'm misunderstanding the case here. <laughs> but, but anyway. Yeah. So it was not, it wasn't the, you know, probably the position I would have chosen if I were choosing the position. And the morning that I was arguing the case, before you walk into the courtroom, you're in this area called the Lawyer's Lounge. And I ran into Paul Clement, uh, who was also arguing that morning. He was arguing a voting case. He thought it was hilarious that I was going to be arguing on this side. He actually said, you know, I wonder what they would have in store for me. And I said this to a colleague. I said, you know, maybe maybe they'll have you defend the constitutionality of the CFPB. Yeah, that's good. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, be, that's what he's doing. Um, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that case yeah. in a second. Yeah, but you but you asked, you know, what's it like to argue yeah, yeah. A, a case in the court? And it's hard to put this all into words, but it's really, it's a, a really thrilling experience. I mean, I think, you know, it's something a lot of litigators and lawyers dream about doing. And there's no question. I mean, on some level, it's like... Any other oral argument, you're preparing for it. it. You know, there's a lot of rigor, but but it is completely different. I mean, these these are people who they're not bound by anything other than you know their own sense of what's right and what 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 is uh, faithful to the precedents and the legal materials. And uh, the level, the the rigor and the level of preparation you go through is like nothing else. I mean, you moot and moot and moot. You do lots of practice sessions such that when you actually do the real thing. I think it is almost like you're playing a video game or you're doing some athletic skill where you've developed a kind of muscle memory. You've trained yourself to know what kinds of questions are going to be asked and to look out for those those questions. And it all got, goes by really, really quickly. I yeah. mean, it, you know, it's half an hour uh, per side, but but it, you know, you it's like you're 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 hit by a truck. And for me, you know, every time. And I feel this in, in in lower courts as well. You know, I'm I'm nervous 
right beforehand. And there's a lot of anxiety and that produces a lot of adrenaline, which is great. And then the minute you start doing it, it's actually a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah. So the, the, the lead up to it is I just sometimes I'm like, why do I do this to myself? Why, why do I put myself through this anxiety? But then the minute you start doing it, you forget about all of that. I think it's like the same kind of biological effect that happens for pregnant women where they immediately forget all the pain yeah. <laughs> and then you, you're just ready to do it again. So it's a, it's a real thrill. And I think this last time where I was arguing as an appointed amicus was maybe the most fun. And it might have been because I didn't have a, a client. You know, there wasn't quite as much at stake. And I felt really comfortable and, and really enjoyed it. I mean, it really is a, a tremendous privilege and a lot of fun to be able to directly engage in this dialogue with the justices. And it, it, it it's really a testament to, you know, the, this institution of government that's this whole branch of government that is transparent about its deliberative process. And it's not just for show, like it is in across the street in Congress. You know, it's not like a congressional hearing where it's just a, a kind of a charade. Mm -hmm. um, they're really asking questions that they want to know the answers to, to help them decide. And you're getting to participate in that process, which is really something kind of beautiful. This dovetails fantastically well, actually, with, with the last episode that we recorded with Yuval Levin, in which he was discussing how a good functional institution actually shapes the people who participate in it. And, mm. and it, viewed in this light, at least, the Supreme Court seems to be on, on stable ground. Did you feel yourself shaped in a certain way, compelled to behave in a way that was different or think about your own role in a way that's, that was different, either just before the Supreme Court or when you were compelled to, to come before them? Yeah, you mean in this la in this last appearance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it is interesting, and I, I thought a lot about what my role is because, in a sense, either you don't have a client or your client is the Supreme Court itself. They've asked you to do this because they want you to aid their process, and you know that's not a small responsibility. On the other hand, you know how do you decide what position you take? Normally, you're balancing the objectives of the client with a certain level of zealousness and you want to calibrate that just the right way. But in this scenario, you can just be a credible broker. But at the same time, <laughs> you do start to believe the, the position that you've taken. And it's, re it's really, it's an interesting kind of, you know, just to examine yourself and the psychology of an advocate. I, I guess I can talk myself into, into <laughs> arguing Let anything. Let that be a lesson for <laughs> Which is dangerous. But yeah, no, I do, I do think, you know, I take the Obviously, you know, I do have a lot of criticisms of the of the court and its decisions and, 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 you know, being an officer of the court and a participant in the court shouldn't preclude us from being critical of the court. But, you know, at a time when a lot of our institutions of, of government under are under a lot of all of the institutions of our society are under tremendous stress, where it really seems like our democracy is sort of in peril. You know, I do think at least in sort of observing some of these institutional traditions and modeling what deliberation looks like, you know, the court stands up reasonably well. Well, how should the court conduct itself at this moment in time? Like you said, there's, you know, in, in many ways, it feels unique uh, in terms of the, the political pressures on the court, the arguments around the court on everything from appointments to the court to the, the cases it takes and the way it decides cases, all of the, the, the tensions within and among the other parts of government. As you said, the Supreme Court is unique in the way it goes about its work, the way they deliberate, 
they, or they, they hear cases publicly, they deliberate privately, but then they have to come back and, and account for their decisions and explain their decisions in a way that other parts of government don't have to. All that, that's all a long windup of saying, looking at the court today with an eye to the political context that you identified, how should the court go about its work? Well, I think the court is, this is a really critical moment in time for the court. And I think the chief justice is very, very conscious of that. And so are other members of the court, but I think particularly the chief. And and I think it's such a critical moment for the court because we live in very, very partisan times. And, you know, this isn't the first time in American right. history where there's been intense partisanship, but it's pretty bad right now. And it's to the point where, you know, I think almost every facet of American life, every institution of American life is really affected by partisanship. We, you know, people live in their own world of facts. They're consuming different media and, and, and they, they don't even agree on sort of common facts. And all of that is, is really disturbing. I mean, I really don't know what the future holds for American democracy. And it is a problem for the court. The composition of the court now, and this hasn't been true in, in earlier decades, is such that the political party of the appointing president maps on directly with the judicial ideology of the justices and their voting patterns in the most highly charged cases. And that is just a problem. It is a big problem for the court. It's a big problem for the perceived legitimacy of the court. And that's really all the court has. If the court is not perceived as doing something different from partisan politics, if the only thing it is doing is translating partisan politics into a different language mm -hmm. that is fancier and more removed and people wear black robes, but they hand down predictable partisan outcomes, then there's really not very much point in having a constitutional court that has that, that kind of function. It's not, it's not really serving the purpose that it's intended for it in our system, and it's going to lose the credibility and legitimacy that it has. And, you know, that should be of concern and there are progressives who are not, not going to like this, me saying this, but that it should be concerned for anyone who cares about the rule of law. I mean, there's a really active conversation right now among progressives about whether to support, you know, really aggressive attacks on the court through, through court packing and other means. You know, I think it's a conversation a little bit like what happened in the 1930s around the, the court in the New Deal. Now, you know, one school of thought is that the, the court packing plan actually succeeded. It failed, of course. It didn't pack the court, but it, per, it persuaded the court that it needed to change and get with the times, lest it sacrifice its legitimacy. And there's a school of thought that, that the same thing should happen now. So, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is, you know, one of the cru most crucial moments for the court's legitimacy in American history. And, and I don't see that problem going away. Now, when I teed up the question, you know, I was focusing on the political context around the court, but some people would say that's just the wrong way to think about this, that the court should go about its work in times of political polarization the same way that it would go about its work in times of political consensus, right? That the job of a judge is to read the law and decide a case and, and not to overthink things like how will the, the, the public sort of receive the decision, mm -hmm. how will the public you know, think about the votes of the judges and how they align with the, the 
political party, the president that appointed them, that all the judge should do is just read the law and decide the case. And, and the moment you start trying to avoid political problems, you're actually creating a different kind of political problem. It looks like you're trying to cater to a political situation. Mm-hmm. Well, how would you respond to somebody sort of presenting that, that question? And I think every, every judge is going to say that all they're doing is reading the legal materials and yeah. deciding the case. No judge will say, I'm concerned about how this will you know, play out in public opinion. But the reality is that the court is at least in part a political institution, and, and it has to know that there are certain things it can't get away with. And this becomes most obvious when the court is deciding really momentous social questions. And you know, I think maybe one thing that emerges from this, I would be hopeful that this would happen, is that there would start to be some consensus among liberals and conservatives, people who care about the rule of law, that maybe the problem is the court being too ambitious about its role in American life. I mean, should the court be deciding the outcome of elections? Should the court be overturning a century's worth of campaign finance law? Should the court be overriding the Voting Rights Act? You know, should should the court be interfering with the mechanics of American democracy or should the court stay out? Yeah. Should the court stay out of all these questions and instead have a more narrow circumscribed role that really has to do with, you know, the interpretation of congressional enactments and where necessary, the interpretation of bedrock constitutional principles, but with a really, really healthy dose of deference to the democratic process. Like that that's what I would like to see. I'd like us to return to, you know, John Hart Ely's vision that what the court is for is for representation reinforcement. The court is supposed to make our democracy more democratic, not get in the way and be a bunch of, you know, philosopher kings who are deciding what's best regardless of what the democratic process has to say about it. No, that those sorts of debates are timeless in American constitutional law on both the right and the left. There have been moments where the political left in America has wanted judicial restraint, and there have been moments where they've wanted a, a more energized judiciary. And, and the, the, the transition between those movements is always interesting, right? The transition from the early progressives who wanted judicial restraint, who then had to grapple with things like segregation in the South and said, no, we do need courts to, to engage this more. And, and, and the same is, is, happens with the right, and that it is happening with the right right now, with debates among the conservatives who were more, it's often called judicial engagement, a more libertarian mm-hmm. approach. And then you have conservatives who were, who were a bit more restrained. They want the court to be a bit more restrained. So that's timeless. But the problem, I suppose, is that at any given moment in time, we're never working off of a blank slate, right? We're talking about asking the court to be restrained or engaged against the backdrop of statutes that were passed by political parties, right? Precedents that were decided by the court at a different era politically, ideologically, and so on. So it is very hard to make the argument sort of from first principles for restraint or for engagement without inviting all sorts of sort of second order political effects, right? We're never really acting on a clean slate. I think that's right. But I think that progressives are now starting to realize that Brown v. Board and the court that produced it and the the decade that followed was sort of an aberration in American history, and that for the most part, where the court has been aggressive and has interfered with the the democratic process, it has been not the friend of progressives. It has been to entrench corporate power, to entrench, you know, powerful, wealthy interests. And I think that that school of thought and sort of a return to 
the thinking of the progressive era. I mean, maybe this has something to do with the fact that we're all calling ourselves progressives rather than liberals now. I, I think that that's on the ascent. But I, but I also have conversations sometimes with people in the civil rights community, civil rights lawyers who are very nervous about this yeah. because civil rights really does depend more so than than other kinds of progressive victories on the judiciary and you know brown is the crowning achievement of civil rights and so there's a there's a concern that we may go too far the pendulum pendulum will swing too far so i mean that is a conversation that's happening and it's it's interesting i mean these these conversations are happening on the left and the right and maybe there needs to be a shared conversation but right now i think they're happening very separately setting aside anybody currently on the court do you have an all-time favorite justice <laughs> Right now, I think of the of the sitting justice. No, 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 no. not the sitting justice. Uh, leave leave okay. the sitting justices out. I mean, if you okay. want to pick a favorite, go okay. ahead. But okay. but uh, but historically, do you have sort of a? I really love Justice Stevens. I loved a lot of things about the way Justice Stevens conducted himself on the job. He was the most unfailingly polite justice. He would ask, "May I ask a question?" And then when he asked the question, it wasn't aggressive. But it was the best question, and it you know sort of often went to the heart of the case. And he was iconoclastic. I mean, he was not. He wasn't. Maybe maybe the late Justice Stevens seemed more like this, but I think that has more to do with the rightward drift of the court. He was not someone who was just playing from a fixed ideological playbook. He's the kind of judge I think you were describing earlier, who who you know reads the materials and comes to the the what he thinks is the right conclusion. Yeah. Now, as a conservative, that drives me. That he he drove me crazy, right? Because he was iconoclastic. He was appointed by President Ford. Whether he drifted left or the court drifted right, the fact is that he the, the gap between he and his fellow Republican appointed justices became more visible, much like yeah. Souter. Right. We conservatives wish we had a few more of those in our direction, right? I, right. I can think of Justice White, maybe, who was a, a Kennedy appointee who wound up, I suppose, dissenting in, in Roe v. Wade and, and, and on a variety of issues was sort of easily categorized as a conservative at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. For conservatives, it's very frustrating <laughs> that, 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 that the growth or the, the, the change tends to disappoint us. And that's why you see us you know, saying no more suitors or, or right. whatever. But I really think that has more to do with the rightward drift of the court and the rightward drift of the, the conservative movement. I mean, you know, these sort of reasonable, moderate Republicans, the Jim Jeffords Republicans, or, you know, these people like Northeastern kind of establishment Republicans, they've just been shoved out of the party, shoved out of the conservative movement. Yeah. But and, in some ways to make room for the, the folks that left the Democratic Party to join the Republican Party, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know that it doesn't that's paint true. a pretty picture of either party. No. <laughs> well, well, fair. Well, we, we have a few minutes. Left. I do want to ask you about the CFPB. Oh, that's, yeah, that's how we originally met. I, when I was in private practice at Boyd and Gray and Associates, we filed a constitutional challenge to the CFPB. You had just left. I think we met because you were debating my boss, Boyd and Gray, mm-hmm. at a bar association event. We filed that case. Gosh. 2012, 2013. It was yeah. a long time ago. Right. The issue is now arriving at the Supreme Court. I'm, that's not the case I worked on, and I'm no longer involved in that case at all. But the Supreme Court is going to decide whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created in the Dodd-Frank Act and really envisioned by then-Professor Elizabeth Warren as an independent regulatory commission or independent agency focused on consumer financial protection apart from all the other federal agencies, really focused first and foremost on protecting the consumers, whether that agency is unconstitutional by the way it's structured. And the issue before the court is whether an agency to have the kind of independence that's ascribed to the CFPB, whether it needs to be a multi-member commission like the FTC or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. 
I know you haven't. Uh, actually, I don't know if you're involved in that case. Uh, I am. Yeah. Oh, I'll, be, I'll be filing a brief. Yeah. Oh, well, then I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask this question since you haven't filed the brief yet. And feel free to, to, to bow out. But I think this, the CFPB's independence is unconstitutional. I've been arguing about this for 10 years. Why am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, I do think you're wrong. I do think that the the CFPB is constitutional. And I think, you know, in some ways, the question before the court might be sort of a narrow technical legal question that I, I'm, I'm curious whether it's going to have much effect in the real world. Because really what it boils down to is whether the for-cause removal protection for the director that protects the director from simply being fired at will by the president because of policy disagreements, whether that provision is unconstitutional given that the agency is a is a single director agency. And that's, you know, if you think about that, that's actually kind of a pretty narrow question, particularly because when the Supreme Court decides separation of powers questions, it often what it does is it severs the offending provision. It's not I, I don't think very many observers of this case think that a realistic outcome is that the CFPB is going to be put out of business mm -hmm. and that all of its regulatory functions are going to be redistributed back to the preceding agencies. That would be a tremendous mess. And I don't think I don't think the banking industry wants that. So that's really the question. And then the question is, you know, for, for conservatives, who I think a lot of your listeners are conservatives, look at the text of the Constitution. Where does it say that Congress, if it so chooses to create an agency, can't have for-cause protection for the director? And we know that the, you know, the Supreme Court has held that it's perfectly permissible to have that kind of protection for an agency like the Federal Trade Commission that regulates in the same area and that has, you know, multiple members. That's Supreme Court precedent since 1935. Then it's incumbent on those who are attacking the, the CFPB's constitutionality to draw a constitutional distinction hmm. between those two different arrangements. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh took a stab at this when he was on the D.C. Circuit, and he said the relevant principle here is liberty, that it takes away from our liberty to have an agency with a single director that has four-cause protection, but it doesn't take away from our liberty to have a multi-member commission. I just don't know where you get that from the text of the Constitution. And I think sort of harkens back to what we were talking about earlier. I'd like to see judges who don't sort of divine in the Constitution's, you know, spaces, its unwritten parts, principles like that. I'd rather see them defer to the political branches that learn through experience and experiment with different forms of government organization. Years ago, when Justice Kavanaugh was still Judge Kavanaugh, he gave a talk. He gave a couple of talks over the years at AEI. And in one of them during the Q&A, he was asked, you know, is there one Supreme Court precedent that you wish you could just wipe away? And at, I was there when he, when he answered the question. And at first, he said, I can't answer a question like that. And the room kind of laughed. And then he said, well, OK, Morrison v. Olson, which yeah. was the, the – it wasn't the FTC case. It was the independent counsel case. Right. right. But there, you know, rests – I mean, Justice Scalia dissented. I think yeah. Justice Kavanaugh has been pretty clear that he would like – like Justice dissent, Justice Scalia's dissent to be the law. It's yeah. not. It's a dissent. Well, on the, the constitutional <clears throat> question, I mean, you're right. There isn't a provision that says agencies can't have independence unless they're multi-member. But the, the crux of the case gets back to the, the notion that the president, the, the constitution does say the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. And I think, I could be wrong, I think Kavanaugh in his D.C. Circuit opinion said something like, you know, the CFPB is effectively the president of financial regulation, right, because it has this measure of independence from, from the president. So if the president has the executive power and the power to take care of that the laws are faithfully executed, and he swears an oath to faithfully execute his office, 
Does not mean that everybody who works in executing the laws should be fully and directly accountable to the president. Sounds like you're asking me whether I believe in the unitary. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know the answer yeah. is no. And and I think I, I'm not sure anyone really does. You know, and, and anyone is really totally faithful to it. I mean, we have. I think most people think it's important to have a central bank that Donald Trump ought not to be able to call up the chairman of the Federal Reserve and dictate monetary policy. God, that would be scary, wouldn't it? So, you know, there are there are lots of institutional arrangements that we have where we think it makes sense to have some measure of insulation from politics. We don't want them to be utterly unaccountable. There's oversight by con- I mean the CFPB has a lot of oversight. There's oversight by Congress, there's oversight by all the other federal agencies which can gang up through the Financial Stability Oversight Council and overrule its decisions. And ultimately, of course, the person is appointed by the president and must be confirmed by the Senate. So, so there, there are a lot of accountability mechanisms, mechanisms, but there are also a lot of institutional arrangements that I don't think meet that understanding of the unitary executive. And I don't think that understanding is really reflected in the current Supreme Court's separation of powers jurisprudence. So, you know, I, look, I don't know what will happen with the case. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked and surprised if the court adopted some more measured version of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's or then Judge Kavanaugh's position. But I also think the real world impact could be that Elizabeth Warren or whoever the next president is gets to name a CFPB director on day one and the agency is here to stay. I think, you know, the more important thing is that's not going to be a, a body blow for the agency. It might have some symbolic importance, but this agency is popular. It has delivered results for American consumers. It's returned over $12 billion in ill-gotten gains from financial institutions. And if you go back to the time when the, the Securities and Exchange Commission was proposed and debated and, and ushered in, a lot of the critiques and rhetoric against the SEC was very similar to what people said about the CFPB at the time of its creation. Yeah. And you don't hear anyone saying that anymore. I mean, I, I think you'd be a crackpot to say, you'd sound like a crackpot now if you said that we should abolish the SEC. Everyone kind of understands that we need for functioning securities markets, we've got to have some regulation. I don't, I don't think that's really something that liberals and conservatives disagree on. Just really quick on the point about the, the CFPB and the issues in this one case, one of the ironies of the case in a way is the challengers are now asking that the court declare that the only independent agencies can be independent multi-member commissions, mm-hmm. right? I don't think, I think that's a fair statement, right? I, mean, maybe. I think that's right. I mean, that was Kavanaugh's opinion in PHH is to have an, indep- an agency with this much independence, it needs to be a multi-member commission where the power is diffused among, and, they, and, they, and the commissioners sort of check and balance one another. That's the, 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 the Humphreys executor versus FTC model that the court affirmed in 1935. That approach has always been sort of anathema to conservatives, at mm-hmm. least since the Reagan era. In this case, it'll be interesting to see how the court, if it actually does declare part of the CFPB unconstitutional, how it frames it, whether it's sort of further re-entrenching the Humphreys executor model and saying we're going to abide by that line, mm-hmm. which would have been very unsatisfactory to conservatives, maybe it would be today. Or whether they say, no, we're going all in with there can be, I mean, I don't think that it would be shocked if they said there could be no agency independence at all. But in a way, to strike down the CFPB, they have to reaffirm the line drawn by Humphrey's executor. Yeah, I think that's a, that will be a real challenge for the, the conservatives on the court. And I think there may be significant disagreement among them mm-hmm. about how to do that. And so then the question is, is it possible to craft a majority opinion that is agnostic? 
on the question. Yeah. And I, I think it's pretty hard to do that. They I did mean, a little bit in, in the, the Sarbanes-Oxley case a few years ago, Free Enterprise Fund. Right, Free Enterprise Where they said, well, they sort of assumed for the sake of argument that the SEC has independence from the president, which isn't explicit in the statute, but it's always been sort of implied. Mm-hmm. They said, well, well we, assuming that the SEC is independent, you can't have two layers of independence. Right. I mean, they could say, you know, assuming that, I mean, you wouldn't say assuming that Humphrey's executor is good law, but you could say Humphrey's executor is not being directly challenged here. Right. Assu- assuming, assuming that, you know, some measure of forecast protection may be permissible in other contexts, yeah. we hold, you know, in using the same kind of reasoning as in free enterprise, that it's not permissible to do it here where it's a single, yeah. where it's a single agency head. But, you know, I just, I even question the empirical sort of assumption that there's more accountability when you've got multiple members. I'm not sure that's true. You don't know who to blame. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Whereas if you've got one person, you know exactly who to blame. We only have a minute left. Let's close on this point. You you made a point just a moment ago about the CFPB, the fact that it was controversial at its founding, but it was founded, and it's hard to imagine it being undone. Conservatives and libertarians, when we, when we push for regulatory reform, we challenge what we see as agency overreach or, or so on. It's often an argument of Steve Bannon. You know, what he said has always been implicit in conservative arguments. Our project is a project of, of deconstruction. But the construction of institutions is, if successful, mm-hmm. has much longer lasting effects, right? And that's not always in a, in a, a progressive direction. When President Reagan created OIRA in mm-hmm. the White House, it had a lot of critics among progressives. Yes. But it was a successful institution that President Clinton and then President Obama also retained, changed in many, you know, in some ways, mm-hmm. recalibrated. Mm-hmm. But it was an institution that took root. Good example. Yeah. Not, not that you're in the business, I suppose, of advising far-right conservatives like me, but based on your experience in building an institution like the CFPB, mm-hmm. do you have any advice for how conservatives like me, benighted however we might be, could learn from the, the example of just the institution building of the CFPB in our own sort of approach to policy? Oh, that's so funny. You I, probably don't get that question a lot. I, but a really fascinating question. But you actually I mean, were there. I mean, conservatives love to talk about institutions. You've, yeah. You helped to build an institution. Yeah, and that was one of the big attractions of going there was to see what you know what is it like to create something out of nothing within the federal government. It was not easy. And I have to say, my inner libertarian was sometimes activated, you know, because <laughs> like, you see that that's th- some of the things the government does. Are we could go 10 most, minutes long if not, you want to tell those stories. <laughs> are not the most efficient or, you know, they can be wasteful. And we tried to, we tried to do it right. We tried to learn from things that government agencies had done right, but also things they had done wrong because we were trying to make something better. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not generally in the business of giving advice to conservatives or institution building, and I don't even know what a conservative is anymore in Donald Trump's America. But maybe when Donald Trump is gone and maybe Trumpism is gone, there'll be an opportunity to sort of rebuild what, you know, conservatism means. You know, I'd love to see that happen because I do think we need two functional opposing forces in American life that are behaving rationally and operating based on facts. <laughs> well, for, for, for all that you and I disagree on on policy, that's a, that seems like a fairly uh, not nice note to, to, to end I don't on. Know. We Could can be agree sabotage. <laughs> well, Deepak, like I said, for all, for all that you and I have disagreed on over the years on policy, I really do admire the work you've done in, in founding this law firm. And, and I wish you great success, maybe not in the CFPB case, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but I think you definitely are a role model for people on both the left and the right on, on pursuing a career in law that is both interesting but also really advances the public interest. 
And so I thank you for, for doing all that. And also I thank you for coming on to the show. Well, thanks so much. That's so nice to, to hear you say. And, and this has been a really fun conversation. And we'll argue about something else next time. Yeah. We thank our audience for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential. Yeah, we'll talk a little. We'll talk a little bit about the the CFPB and so on. But and if I chime in, yeah, don't don't be startled. Or tall, yeah, tall no, is sort of. The, I may or may not. Is, I reserve the right. Though. He's sort of the voice of the audience. Sure. He sort of will Vox jump Populi. in. Yeah. So and, you sort or of comic relief. And so you like do an introduction and then you sometimes jump in. Adam will so. do the introduction. Okay. He's yeah. gonna say hi to me and I'm gonna mm-hmm. ramble. <clears throat>